0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: This is Season 7 of Office Hours, and our theme is The Holy Spirit, Lord and Giver of Life. We say the name of the Spirit so often and so quickly that perhaps we don't stop to consider what we've just said. Paul calls the Spirit the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of separation and consecration to God, the Spirit of purity, of total devotion to God as he has revealed himself in Christ. He is the Holy Spirit. To be sure, the Father and the Son are equally holy, but the Holy Spirit is uniquely commissioned to apply the work of Christ to his people in salvation, in raising them from death to life, uniting them by grace alone through faith alone to Christ, and to bring them into gradual conformity to Christ in salvation the work of sanctification. Dennis Johnson is professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and he's here to think together with us about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. He's been a pastor since 1973, and he's taught here since 1982. He's author of several books, most recently, the Reformed Expository Commentary on Philippians. This, along with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours.
2: Thank you very much, Scott.
1: In this season of Office Hours, of course, as we said in the introduction, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And some years back, you wrote an essay entitled, How My Mind Has Changed on Infant Baptism, that many people have found helpful. How has your mind changed on the role of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the doctrine of sanctification?
2: I think I've become more aware of the Holy Spirit's personal presence and power as crucial to our struggles against sin and our struggle to pursue holiness. I think as a young Christian, I assumed that God had shown me wonderful grace in justification and giving me faith first in regeneration and then declaring me righteous and forgiven because of what Jesus had done. And then I tended to feel that from that point on, the baton was in my hand and I needed to resist sin and pursue purity through self-discipline, through a prudent avoidance of circumstances that might tempt me into sin. It had a lot to do with my thinking about what I need to do, and I've come to see more that although I do have a responsibility in sanctification to resist sin, to resist temptation, that I really desperately need the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, that as the Shorter Catechism says, sanctification is a work of God's free grace. He sanctifies.
1: Is there a connection Between the development of your view of the person and work of the Spirit in sanctification to the way you have come to view the work of the Spirit in your salvation more broadly and your coming to faith, for example. In other words, you were not always a confessional reformed thinker, and now you are. So, I'm wondering if as you came to see the role of the Spirit in the doctrine of salvation, particularly in uh, regeneration, if that hasn't also had a big influence in the way you see the work of the Spirit in sanctification.
2: Oh, it definitely has, although I have to confess it took me longer (laughs) to see how utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit I am in sanctification. The biblical texts that were presented to me showing me that it was not my decision to accept Jesus, but it was really God's work giving me a new heart, giving me eyes to see the glory of Christ, drawing me and uh, securing me in my salvation. Those I could see and those I began to see as wonderfully good news, which they are. It took me longer, I think, to realize in a deep way how much I depend on the Holy Spirit for my daily walk of putting away sin and pursuing conformity to Christ, which is all the work that only He can do really in me
1: why do you think that it was easier to see the work of the Spirit in bringing you to faith than it was to see the work of the Spirit in conforming you to Christ?
2: I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think it may be just that I still had, we still have at times, reflex reaction to think that if there's any responsibility on me, it's almost all the responsibility on me. And sanctification does involve my resisting temptation, pursuing holiness. Hebrews says that's a crucial thing, and so I'm not altogether passive. As I came to see, I really was passive, and the Holy Spirit gave me life from the dead. I didn't cooperate with the Holy Spirit in any sense then. In sanctification, I need to absolutely depend on the Spirit's work, but independence on the Spirit's work then in the power of the new life that He's given me and my union with Christ, I need to not submit myself again to influence of sin and disobedience, but rather to live in the freedom that is mine now as a risen member of the body of Christ.
1: Do you think it's also possible that when one is making the transition from general evangelicalism into Reformed theology and piety and practice, that the flashpoint initially is, or the tension point, is the question of how we come to faith, and that we don't really talk as much about sanctification as we do, for example, regeneration and sovereign grace and salvation in the way that we ordinarily think about it.
2: I do think that's a good part of it, that those issues, as we've come from a wider evangelical perspective where we've emphasized human will, are the ones that we have to process very deeply and talk a lot about and then tend not to think as deeply about the ongoing sovereign work of the Spirit in our growth in Christ.
1: As you have tried to communicate the doctrine of sanctification and the practice of sanctification and the implications of it, what are some of the most frequent misconceptions you find as a pastor? In the church about the work of the Spirit in the Christian life?
2: I think one of the most frequent misconceptions is the expectation that somehow we should be able to feel what the Holy Spirit's doing in us. That we should sense that there's a difference. And he's very quiet. He's very mysterious in the way he works this process in us. But the result is if we are depending upon how we are feeling as kind of the measure of what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives, then we can go in a couple of unfortunate and sometimes even bizarre directions. If we sense that the Spirit is nudging us in a particular way, we may forget that the Holy Spirit is always working through the Word and it's the scriptures that the Holy Spirit uses to guide us and lead us as to what is obedient and pleasing to the Father. We don't have to rely on little nudges and feelings. And by the same token, I actually know of people who have said, well, you know, when the Holy Spirit wants me to deal with this particular sin or that particular sin in my life, he's going to make it really unpalatable to me to do that sin. And because I still feel the appeal of that sin, then that's not on the Holy Spirit's agenda right now. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, seriously.
1: and, And there's a certain ingeniousness to that way of putting it. It lefts me off the hook. Exactly. And it sounds, at least for a moment, until we reflect on it, like a pious thing to say. And yet, what's the fatal error in that way of thinking and speaking?
2: Well, again, it separates the work of the Spirit from His Word. That's one of the fatal errors, at well,
1: least. That would be huge, right? I mean, That's it, huge. If someone says to me, well, the Spirit really hasn't laid it on my heart to you know, to think a certain way or he hasn't made this so unpalatable, as you said. It's really saying it doesn't matter what Scripture says, which is the product of the Holy Spirit working through, you know, the, the prophets and the apostles. It matters mostly my subjective experience of or apprehension of or perception of extra biblical witness of the Spirit within me. So it's a kind of radical subjectivism, it seems.
2: Well, it is. In effect, although those that I've heard say something like this would not say they're getting new special revelation. But in effect, it is kind of saying my experience has conveyed to me a revelation of the mind of the Spirit that trumps what the Holy Spirit has himself said in the written word of Scripture, and so that's crucial. And then I think part of it is too. And I know I've talked with people a long time about this. And you, you feel with people who are really struggling with an area of temptation, and often since they're being defeated in that, the, the feeling that if the Holy Spirit's power indwelling me should make the struggle against sin easier, why is it such a struggle if the sovereign Spirit of God is at work, and if He is stronger than sin and stronger than the allure of temptations if, as Paul says in Romans 6, I really have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. As he says in 2 Corinthians, I'm a new creature in Christ. But Paul also says in Galatians 5 that the spirit is in constant struggle wrestling with the flesh. He will prevail, but there's still that struggle. And I think that's part of what frustrates, I think, struggling Christians. The thought of a second blessing that would bring us into a kind of a perfectionism, a kind of a freedom from known sin, is so incredibly appealing when we're struggling. And yet, the New Testament says, because the Spirit is indwelling you and at work and warring against that legacy of the old nature, who has been defeated but is not completely gone, because the Spirit is with you, expect struggle. You're
0: listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So really, you've raised two questions. One, what is the measuring stick
1: by which we evaluate our progress in the Christian life? And then two, what is the expectation we are to have. And you raised the question of perfectionism. So, let's clarify that a little bit. So, if the measuring stick, the canon, the rule is not my perception of what the Spirit is you know, witnessing to me, ultimately, it's the objective revelation of God's Word to which the Spirit does give witness. Certainly, neither of us, I think, is denying that how do we communicate to people and what can you say as a pastor to persuade people to use the scriptures as the measuring stick not only for what god's will is but for what is actually occurring within them even though they may not be perceiving it as i think you were suggesting earlier
2: well i think we just need to keep emphasizing that where the holy spirit has spoken to us clearly is in his word in the scriptures and the scriptures make it so clear that his agenda is to conform us more and more to the image of Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That whole section in Romans eight is a beautiful, beautiful section about how we have the first fruits of the Spirit and yet we still groan, we're not there yet. But his agenda to do all things for good to those who are called according to God's purpose, to make us like Christ, that's clear. And then when we ask, well, what does it mean to be made like Christ progressively, not thoroughly or completely ever in this life? Clearly, the New Testament and the Old, the law, now for us as believers, it's not our prosecuting attorney any longer. It's our Father's voice and saying, this is what it looks like. In now the third use, as we sometimes call it, of the law, the law's guidance to us, how do we express our love for the Father? How do we express our love for others whom he calls us to love? It's becoming like Jesus by the power of the Spirit in specific acts and attitudes of obedience and and love. So, we
1: should not assume that our own perception at any given moment of how we're doing in sanctification is normative. We should assume that what God says about us is normative, even if it doesn't feel at any given time, like we're really living out or experiencing what we think we should be experiencing.
2: Agreed. And God's evaluation of how we personally are doing at any one point, somehow we have to wrestle with how do we, you know, look at the mirror of the word, as James says, and then see ourselves. And it's easy sometimes for us to ignore patterns of sin in our lives. It's also easy for us to become Kind of blind to areas where the Holy Spirit actually is working in our lives. There is a progress. We may not see it, but there's a progress in sanctification that we may not see. And uh, that's where, again, we can rest and trust our assurance, not in our degree of sanctification over a particular hour, day, month, year, even, but we rest our assurance in the perfect work of Jesus.
1: Because if you don't do that, you really won't make progress in sanctification. If your focus turns inward, not to say you should never evaluate yourself, we must, but if you're looking first at yourself and constantly going within, you're not actually going to be moving toward the target, the goal, the measure, which is conformity to Christ. The only way you actually become conformed to Christ is to be looking at him and his promises and then his revealed moral will for us in the word.
2: Exactly. I think the Belgic Confession is so right on in its chapter on sanctification where it talks about apart from saving faith, which is trusting Christ and his perfect righteousness and his forgiving blood, apart from that, all that we might do in the pursuit of good works or pursuit of transformed attitudes ultimately are an expression of Self-love rather than love for God. It's only when the issue of our standing before God, our place in his heart is absolutely secured by what Jesus has done, we have real assurance. Then we can begin to grow in godliness for love of God rather than for love of ourselves or fear of his judgment.
1: The same power that brought you, Dennis Johnson, from death to life is the same power— that raised Jesus from the dead, is the same power that's operating in you now, putting to death the old man and making alive the new.
2: Exactly. You know, I was thinking, knowing we were going to talk about this, that I think early on I thought a lot about acts, deeds that I needed to do. And then I came to see, but I need to look at the motives, too. And is my motive one of thankful love? But more recently, I've thought, I need those. I need to know what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. And I need that motive of thankful love. But if I don't also have hope, I may end up thinking, if only I could love the way I should love, but I can't. And God makes the promise of the Holy Spirit. I think of Philippians six: He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus.
1: And that's an objective promise. I mean, that's not conditional. It doesn't say if you do your part. It simply says there is, I guess, an assumed condition. Assuming that you are united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, then this is a promise that is true of you, even if you don't perceive it at a particular moment in your Christian experience.
2: That's so true. That's so true. And that hope, that assurance, based on that sure promise, is what really does give me a motivation. It's grateful love, but it's also the hope that God will carry this through that then motivates me to resist sin and to pursue holiness and to pursue love. In the second chapter of Philippians, Paul carries that forward. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do what pleases Him. So, he's grounding it in what God is already doing And that doesn't nullify the call to us to work and salvation. In this particular verse, he's focusing really on this process of sanctification, both individually and then in our fellowship and our community and then in the church. But it's because God is at work, giving us both the desire and then by the Spirit the power to obey, to love, that we are therefore must and are enabled to begin this life and carry forward with all of our stumblings this life, this pilgrimage of walking with God and has seen the Spirit conform us to Jesus more and more.
1: Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so, there is a once-for-all aspect of our salvation. Jesus in Hebrews is very clear about that. Once for all, right? The final sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the prophet. He is the temple. He's the offering. Uh, He's the way into heaven. And yet, the consequence of that is that we are in the process of being sanctified. And it's very clear that it's an ongoing thing there in Hebrews 10. Definitely.
2: Definitely. Definitely, yeah. He uses the whole picture of Israel walking through the wilderness. So we're not home yet. We are in this process of being sanctified. That's the Christian life. But the decisive change in our relationship with God, and really the decisive change in us subjectively, regeneration, imparting faith to us, and then God declaring us righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done, that's taken place, and we are now new creatures. Still, as you say, in the process of being made more holy.
1: Which raises the issue that we sort of snuck up to earlier, and that is the kind of implicit perfectionism sometimes we may fall into. That is that thinking that, well, we should arrive at a point in our life, in this life, in our Christian life, of entire sanctification before we die or before Jesus returns. And then when that doesn't happen, then people think, well, you know, I'm a complete failure. I, you know, I've not achieved what I should have achieved. I've not done my part, or the Spirit hasn't given me the second blessing. So, Pastor, help us think through this question. Should we be thinking that in this life, we ought to achieve entire sanctification or Christian perfection?
2: You're going to think my every answer comes from Philippians, but you go to the third chapter of Philippians, and the Apostle Paul, at the opening of the chapter— glories in the fact that he has a righteousness that is not of his own doing. It's not from the law. It's the righteousness of God given by faith. And then he immediately says he's not yet arrived at all that for which God has laid hold of him. He hasn't laid hold of the prize for which Christ has laid hold of him. He's still in the process of growing. And at that place, he says, now, if you're really mature, you're going to think the way I think. So the mark of Christian maturity in this life is to realize that we're not absolutely, exhaustively, thoroughly mature yet. It's to see that as a lifelong process, and that's well, frustrating, but it shouldn't be discouraging to us. It's the pattern of pilgrimage that the Lord has led us to.
1: I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking
0: me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. That imagery
1: is very important. I've been working through, again, First Peter, and that's one of the fundamental images of First Peter, where, in a sense, we're like Noah, but we're also very much pilgrims. He calls us strangers and aliens, which is not only a way to describe our relationship to the surrounding culture, which is certainly the case, but it's also a way of describing the fact that we are not yet where we shall be, which I think is hugely important because When we fall into perfectionism, we both set unrealistic expectations for ourselves and we lower the standard by which God measures or by which we measure his revealed will and what he will finally achieve
2: in us. Right. Right. We settle for something less than the absolute very best.
1: When someone says, I've achieved perfection, they're really saying something rather sad about what it is we expect, about eschatology, really.
2: True. And we also, I think, have every right to suspect that... There may be just touches of spiritual pride that they haven't fully grasped and haven't seen themselves.
1: When someone says, I don't sin any longer, you know, and I'm thinking of a particular case. My wife taught in a Christian school and a student came from the perfectionist tradition and announced that this um, 16-year-old or 15-year-old student had achieved entire perfection. I've often puzzled how to respond to that (laughs) because, you know, from all that I know, that isn't true. And yet this person was speaking genuinely.
2: Sincerely. Sincerely. They were
1: being sincere. Uh And yet they were profoundly wrong. And I've never found an entirely adequate way to respond to that, even though I know it to be quite false, other than to say, no, you haven't, and you've set the standard the wrong way, you've defined sanctification the wrong way, and you've completely misunderstood the nature of the Christian existence between the ascension of Jesus and his glorious return.
2: what could you say? Could you say, you know, I'm not there, and therefore I have a little trouble believing that you at 16 have already arrived there. If I would interview your parents, your brothers, your sisters, if we could— could capture your thought life on a video and broadcast it on the screen in front of everybody just for the next, like, 24 hours. Would that work for you? Because I think we sense that we're not there yet. We know that in some deep way. Obviously, I don't know this young man, but there's good biblical theology to present to him, but then there's also the question of how do we perhaps gently or firmly touch his conscience so that he begins to see that we constantly need forgiveness, forgiveness, and we constantly need the holy spirit to be at work in us cuz we're not there.
1: Maybe Jesus answer is the best answer, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor.
2: Ah, that would do it. Yeah, that's sort of what the rich young man was claiming, I've right? Done, I've all done, this done it all. Now. Yeah. And Jesus yeah.
1: Said, well, you think you've done it all, then here I've got a test for you. Yeah. And of course he went away sad because that was a test he could not meet. Right. Because in fact, he didn't actually love God with all his faculties and his neighbor as himself. Because he too had moved the marker, the goalpost. And then you and I w- maybe would go at Romans 7 differently. I might go through Romans 7 with someone, and I'm guessing you might not, at least not quite in the same way. That, that could we'll be. Save that we'll t- talk that one. Yeah, that's another, another, another episode.
2: Um, all right. But we would use Galatians 5 very much the same way. Right? Yeah, exactly. The spirit warring against the flesh, and that's an ongoing experience. And again, Paul's example in Philippians 3. Here's an apostle saying, I am not yet where I want to be in terms of my struggle against sin and my pursuit of holiness. I have not yet arrived. And if you're mature, you're going to think this way, too, because we're going to know ourselves clearly enough in the light of the Word to know that we have much growth that we still need to take and need to have the Spirit work in us.
1: And Luke is very realistic in his portrayal of the apostles, the disciples, the apostles. And Peter, it seems to me, is a particularly outstanding example. Luke is just not ruthless, but brutally honest about who Peter is and what he was both before Pentecost and even after Pentecost.
2: Yes, yeah.
1: And, and you'd think if anybody was subject to immediate and total sanctification, it would be those upon whom the Holy Spirit rested in the form of fire. And yet, clearly, Peter did not achieve entire sanctification. And assuming, as I do, that First and Second Peter, written near the end of his life, 64, 65, 66, those epistles seem to witness to the consciousness of a fellow who had not even yet, at that late date, arrived at full sanctification. Mm-hmm. Salvation, we confess, is the work of the whole Trinity, all three persons of the Holy Trinity. But Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of holiness in Romans one three. So, even though salvation is the work of the whole Trinity, yet there is a distinct office of the Spirit in sanctifying us. What does Paul mean to invoke when he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of holiness? That's
2: just one place where he associates the Spirit with his work of infusing grace that makes this into us.
1: Not in order to be accepted no, no, God, but because we have
2: been because accepted. Because we have been accepted.
1: So we affirm infusion. Sometimes yeah, that yeah. troubles people when Reformed people continue to talk about infusion because they've only heard it discussed negatively. In the doctrine of justification.
2: As though it were the ground of our justification, which is not.
1: And that's the Roman doctrine, which right. we reject. But we do believe that the Holy Spirit is infusing us in sanctification with holiness.
2: Right, right. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 talks about sanctification by the Spirit. Peter, actually, you mentioned First Peter, Peter opens his epistle by talking about the sanctification of the Spirit. It's his mission because he is indwelling us— And there's some mystery there too. How does he indwell believers? But he does, I mean, the whole temple imagery that is used not just of the whole church, but of us as individuals. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. His task is to take what Jesus has accomplished once for all in his obedience, death, resurrection, ascension. Now he's poured out the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's task is to take that and to apply it to us on an ongoing basis. And so his work is to sanctify us. Paul talks about this. Obviously, we've been talking about Galatians 5, the spirit struggling with the flesh that is the sinful nature and that constant battle. He talks about it at the beginning of Romans 8, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The spirit who indwells you is the spirit of God who raised him from the dead. And it's that resurrection life that we already taste in a sense, in the Spirit's presence and in the power that he gives us to love others and to love the Lord, which would not be our instinct at all apart from his transformative work.
1: That it happens at all in our life is fruit and evidence of the present ongoing work of the Spirit. He has not only made us alive with Christ, he has united us to Christ, and he is applying the work of Christ to us. So maybe that distinguishes his office and his work in the economy of salvation from the work of the Son, who accomplishes salvation for us, and the Father who sends the Son. The Spirit is distinct in his work of application of those things, and he does it through uniting us to Christ. So even in Romans 6, when Paul talks about our dying with Christ— That's an implicit recognition of the work of the Holy Spirit, because it's only because we've been united to him that we have died to sin with Christ.
2: Right. And Paul talks about our being raised to righteousness, to live now to God in a righteous way. And that, too, the Spirit applies both Christ's death for us, he applies to us in that death is no longer our tyrannical Lord. Paul uses that language. It will not lord it over you. It will not control you. Sure. Because death has happened. Our death has happened. And the Spirit is bringing that home to us. And resurrection has happened as well. So we're living now, in a sense, we still struggle in a lot of ways, but we're living now in the resurrection life that is ours in Christ. And, you know, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit as the first fruits, as the down payment or the pledge. His presence in our lives is um, both both guarantees and gives us that first taste and installment of the eternal gift of the triune God to us as our God, which we will enjoy in fullness when Jesus returns and the Spirit completes his work applying resurrection life even to our mortal bodies.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: When Paul says in Romans 6.14, as I think you were just suggesting, for sin will no longer have dominion over you, Since you are not under law, but under grace, and it just occurred to me as you were saying that, because you put it so wonderfully, talking about the tyrannical dominion, that the imagery behind that really must be Pharaoh who held Israel in a tyrannical dominion, and we have been delivered by God's sovereign grace, out of Egypt into Canaan. Now, Israel continued to sin in Canaan, but they were no longer under the dominical tyranny of Pharaoh. Is that a fair way to think about what Paul's saying in Romans 6? I think it is.
2: I think it is. Yeah, definitely the exodus from the tyrant, the exodus from his death-inflicting slavery. Paul would say, and I think Hebrews would say as well, we've been set free in not every way are we yet in Canaan. You know, we are free from the tyranny of Pharaoh, but we're now living in the wilderness. In the wilderness, yeah. <laughs> so, we're en route to Canaan. And Hebrews makes a strong point of that, that we are still looking for the city that is to come. We're still awaiting, even though the Lord is with us now and he's sustaining us and we need to hear his word. Paul, I think, would say much the same thing in that 1 Corinthians 10, he uses the analogies of Israel's temptations and sometimes fall in the wilderness and says, now, those are all pictures. God has provided for them in the wilderness, the water from the rock, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, set free, but not fully home yet.
1: We're not fully realizing it yet. And so, that's why Hebrews quotes Psalm 95.
2: Exactly. Right? Right.
1: Because we are a wilderness people, and we're not yet where we shall be. We're looking, like Abraham, for the city whose builder and maker is God. So, we've been delivered, We're in root, and we don't want to understate that. That's a grand reality, which is why Paul says, since you are not under law, but under grace. So we're no longer under the covenant of works. We're under the covenant of grace. And God accepts us on the basis of Jesus accomplishment of the covenant of works for us, which is why it's a covenant of grace that we're in, which is, I think, hugely important for the Christian to understand in order to think correctly about the Christian life. Otherwise, as I think we've been saying, one loses hope or mismeasures.
2: Definitely. You lose hope, you mismeasure, you are tempted constantly to gauge whether God is favorably disposed toward you on your perception of your own performance.
1: And you put yourself back under a covenant of works. Essentially,
2: you do, yeah.
1: Which is a tragedy and a mistake, and it won't help one's sanctification. One of the ways that we like to talk about sanctification and the role of the Spirit is through the preaching of the gospel. What is it that the Spirit does particularly through the preaching of well, we could say the law, too. What does the Spirit do through the preaching of the law, and what does he do through the preaching of the gospel? And here I'm thinking about the official ecclesiastical proclamation of the law and the gospel through the minister in a gathered Lord's Day worship service. Well,
2: I think going back to kind of the beginning of our conversation, that the tendency that I've seen and maybe well experienced of gauging how the Spirit is speaking to us from how we feel inside, that the beautiful thing, the wonderful thing, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't lock us up to our feelings instead from outside, from Christ commissioned messengers. He speaks His word that, to be sure, diagnoses our sin. Still, as believers, He shows us that mirror that James uses. The law is a law of freedom for us, but it does expose where we need freedom still from the legacy of our sinful desires. But then He turns through that word that comes to us from outside. He turns our attention to Christ and shows us what Christ has done for us and assures us that Christ, who has obeyed for us and suffered for us, and Risen for us and given his Holy Spirit to lay hold of us will not let us go. And so, occasionally, I've talked to church members who have missed several weeks and they thought, I just can't go to worship. I'm not sanctified enough. I'm not sanctified enough, or I'm struggling with this, or I'm struggling with that. And I've always said, gently but as strongly as I can, oh, you need to be with God's people, you need to hear the word preached. You need to hear the gospel pour over you again from outside. If you are not worthy to be in worship, that's exactly where you need to be. Absolutely.
1: The gospel is for the unworthy. Exactly. Jesus did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He said that explicitly. And so when we upset ourselves from the public proclamation of the law and the gospel, we actually hurt our own sanctification. So we need to stop thinking that we need to clean ourselves up before we go and assemble with a bunch of
2: sinners. Exactly right.
1: Then we also like to connect... And I think properly, the work of the Spirit with what we call the means of grace beyond preaching of the gospel, and that would be prayer and and the sacraments. Now, those are two different kinds of means, but how do we think about the work of the Spirit through prayer, which I think we've already touched on, and then particularly the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper?
2: Yeah, I think if we let Scripture control our thinking about the Spirit's work in sanctification and prayer, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to be going, among other places, to the prayers that Paul embeds for the churches at the beginning of so many of his epistles because he is praying for their sanctification. Philippians, my default these days, huh? I'm praying that your love may increase more and more. And that's his way of signaling things that he will address in the epistle. But it's really a genuine prayer to pray for sanctification. I think sometimes our prayer life is much too focused on immediate material needs or physical needs, healing appropriate to pray for those things. But we should be praying for the work of the Spirit to ourselves and for others as well as we're in spiritual warfare. And as we do that, and as God in His grace, the Spirit in His grace, gives us some strength to resist temptations that had tripped us up for years and years. He gets the glory because this is not the product of our self-discipline or our strong will. Pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Right. We can begin to see and wonder the Holy Spirit has helped me to see that what I thought was so attractive and yet displeasing to the Lord really is ugly because it's displeasing to the Lord. I don't want that anymore. And so he gets the glory and we pray. We pray hard for that.
1: And we gather with the congregation to see the gospel made visible in baptism, whether new converts or the children of believers initiated into the visible covenant community. And that water testifies that we have been washed clean. And we need to see that. Yes. Even if we don't remember our own baptism, when we see others being initiated, we see a visible reminder. Hey, there's water. Just as that washes the outward body, so too we are reminded that we are being washed by the Spirit.
2: Definitely. It's Well, we know. We speak of the sacraments as visible words, and it makes the word that we've heard in our ears, the gospel word, a bit tangible for us. Temptation is so often tangible in various ways. There are temptations that speak only to the wicked pride of our hearts, but a lot of it is tangible. God calls us to trust the word heard, but he also makes that word visible in beautifully the water of baptism, right? cleansing us. Water sometimes associated with anointing and empowering. The Spirit has come upon us. He not only cleansed us once— which he did, but the Spirit is indwelling us now and empowering us in temptation as well. And the Supper, you know, the Lord's Supper. Jesus is feeding us with his life, his death and life given for us.
1: Hungry, needy sinners are being fed, we say, by grace alone, through faith, receiving the body and blood of Christ, mysteriously by the operation of
2: the Holy Spirit. Exactly.
0: Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.